morning, Plum Creek. It's great to see all of you here this morning, and I'm excited to jump into this series on relationships, but first, I want to update you on a couple of things from this past week. It's been a great week in the life of our church. On Friday and Saturday, close to 70 women were out at the Plum Creek Women's Retreat, growing closer to God and closer to each other. I've already heard some good stories coming out of that retreat, and I'm really thankful that all of you got to experience that together. But I also want to take a minute to tell you about Easter. You know, it's common knowledge that churches tend to have a higher attendance on Easter Sunday, but this year we really focused on Easter as a unique opportunity to pursue our mission, which is leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So we laid out a challenge where all of us would pray for at least one person and invite that person to join us on Easter. Well, I was so excited to see how many of you accepted that challenge. We had a huge crowd here last week. Once every person was counted, the total number was 1,009, which is amazing. It's a big number. In the entire history of Plum Creek, which goes back over 130 years, that's an all-time record for worship attendance on a Sunday. Yeah, let's praise God for that. Now, that is an amazing milestone, but I want to explain for a second why it's amazing. First, every one of those 1,009 people has a name, and every name has a story. Many of those people were guests, and every one of them is deeply loved by God. Each one is a person Jesus died for, and that's why we love to see guests here at Plum Creek. Every time someone shows up to visit, they're, they're taking a step closer to Jesus. And we love to see people taking their next step, whether that's hearing about Jesus for the first time or beginning a relationship in him or, or growing closer to him. All of those next steps are important. There's another reason why last week's attendance was amazing. Back in January, a group of our leaders got together and we started praying about a specific goal. We prayed that God would bring 1,000 people here for Easter. And we prayed for this goal not because we're motivated to just gather a crowd. It's because we're motivated to see as many people as possible come to know Jesus. So when I finally saw last week's total attendance, I just had to say, thank you, God. That's a direct answer to prayer. It's an amazing thing when we get to see God answer prayer like that. But I have to tell you one more reason why this milestone was special to me. Several years ago, I had a conversation with Rube McCain, a longtime member of Plum Creek who passed away back in 2013. Rube was quite memorable for lots of reasons, but one of the things I remember most was his deep concern and deep passion for people who need Jesus. Well, just a few months before he died, Rube was in the hospital, and he wasn't well enough to be here for Easter. But after the service, I, I went to visit him, and I walked into his hospital room, and he looked up at me, and he said, did we get a thousand? Well, this year, Rube, it happened. We got a thousand. So I, I just wanted to take a second to praise God for that answer to prayer. And I also want to say thanks to all of you who volunteered and worked and prayed and invited leading up to Easter. And now my prayer is that we will keep reaching out and will continue to let God use us 
So I wanted to share those things with our Plum Creek family. But what if you were one of those guests last Sunday? Or what if you're here today for the very first time? Well, for one thing, you've taken the step to be here this morning, and that's awesome. But I want to invite you to what may be your next big step. A week from today, Sunday, May 5th, we're hosting a special lunch that we call Discover. And I would say for anyone who's new to Plum Creek, attending Discover is, is the best thing you can do to learn more, to get connected. This is a free lunch. Child care is provided. Uh, you'll have the chance to meet some of us on staff, and you'll get to know Plum Creek better and learn where you can get plugged in. And if you haven't signed up yet, you can register at plumcreek.org discover, or you can use the QR code in your bulletin. You can also head out to the Information Center after service, and we can get you signed up there, too. Well, we're going to dig into Scripture this morning, but before we do that, I want to go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to come together and worship you in peace and in freedom. I want to thank you for the hope that we find through your Son, Jesus. Today, we remember the victims of the violence in Sri Lanka, those who were attacked simply because of their allegiance to Christ. Lord, we grieve for those who are suffering, and we ask that you would give them strength and comfort. But we thank you that because of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, we can have hope no matter what we're facing, whether we're in a time of peace or a time of persecution. Lord, I pray that you will use us to lead others to that hope. And I pray as we open your word this morning that you will speak to us, that we will listen, and we will respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're starting this new series called The Fight of Your Life, and it's all about relationships. And we might like the idea of a life where relationships are always easy, and we never have any conflicts, and we don't have to fight to keep our relationships healthy and strong, but that's just not reality, is it? By nature, relationships can be very rewarding, but they can also be very difficult. Now, over the course of this series, we're going to deal with all kinds of relationships, but we're starting with one of the most important, and that's marriage. Now, let me just say, for anyone who's thinking, ah, this message doesn't apply to me, I hope you'll hang with me because we're going to look at some principles that apply to all of us, whether you're currently married or no longer married or you've never been married. Um, we're going to begin by laying a foundation. We're going to listen to what Jesus said about marriage. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can open up to Matthew chapter 19. In this passage, Jesus gives a great summary of marriage. Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Man, there is a ton of meaning in what we just read. Uh, we could honestly take several weeks to unpack everything Jesus is talking about here. But for today, let's look at just a few basic concepts from this passage. Uh, for example, according to what Jesus said, what is the definition of marriage? Well, we could put it this way. Marriage is one man and one woman united for life. 
And the key word in that definition is the word united. That's a very strong word. Marriage is not just a guy and a girl who like each other and start hanging out. Uh, Marriage is not just two individuals who happen to live together. What did Jesus say? He said, when a couple is married, you really shouldn't think of them as two separate people anymore. In a very real sense, the two become one. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, during the sermon today, I want to use some graphics to help us understand these concepts. First, I want to put two separate circles up on the screen. Each circle represents an individual. You've got team woman and team man. They have separate identities, separate goals, separate lives. But let's say this woman and this man decide to get married. What happens then? Well, it's a very different picture, isn't it? Instead of two separate circles and two separate teams, we now have just one circle. The husband and wife are now one entity, one team. But what needs to take place before these two become one? Well, in order to form this new team, each individual has to make some major sacrifices. You have to sacrifice your old identity and take on a new shared identity. You have to give up your independence. You have to give up lots of personal preferences and even rights. Sacrifice has to become a way of life. So now, if you are currently single, we've already discovered several things that apply to you. First, it's not helpful to pretend that you've formed this team when you really haven't. Don't act like you've made this commitment if you haven't done it yet. But there's another important lesson here. Uh, If you are thinking about marriage, don't form this team unless you're both ready for the sacrifice required. You both need to ask yourself some serious questions like, am I willing to serve this person every day for the rest of my life, even when I don't feel like it? Uh, Am I willing to let go of my own desires for the sake of this other person? This is a big commitment, so you don't want to jump into that circle with just anybody. You want to be confident as much as possible that this other person is trustworthy and that you're both on the same page with basic beliefs and goals. These are critical things to consider. But what if you are ready to jump into that circle? Or what if you're already married? Well, marriage can be great. It can be a beautiful thing. I know that from experience. But it comes with a built-in challenge. Every marriage is made up of two people who are both selfish. We all have a tendency to be selfish. We all have moments when we'd rather think about ourselves instead of doing what's best for the team. So how do we deal with this tendency toward selfishness? Well, we have to fight it. That's why today's message is called fight for your spouse. A marriage won't be healthy unless the husband and wife are both fighting to make it healthy. So I want to go through a list of four key battles Four ways that you need to fight for your spouse and your marriage. I'll touch on the first three very quickly. Number one, you have to fight to prioritize your spouse over every other human relationship. Your friends can't be the priority above your spouse. You also can't let your mom or your dad or even your kids come before your spouse. Remember that circle? Who's in there? It's just the husband and the wife right? No other human gets to join in that union. This relationship is completely unique. 
It's exclusive, and that's by God's design. Now, we'll say more about this in a minute, but let's look at the second battle. You've got to fight to build unity through love and respect. Think about it this way. On a day-to-day basis, what are you doing to make your spouse feel like a priority? Does your wife feel loved and cherished? Does your husband feel respected and valued? Every person is different, so you really have to get to know your spouse and learn the best way to communicate that love and respect. And the truth is, it's a process. I'm always learning what does and what does not make my wife feel loved. Just this week, I learned something new. (laughs) I learned that Hannah does not feel loved if we're together at home, and it's nighttime, and the kids are in bed, and we're sitting next to each other on the couch watching TV, and I get a piece of popcorn stuck in my teeth, and I use some dental floss to get it out. Uh, It was last Wednesday night when I learned that. Uh, For a moment there, she didn't feel loved. But that's a perfect example of a time when I need to sacrifice my personal preferences for the sake of my wife so that we can be more united as a team. Okay, so that's the first two battles, and I'll mention one more for the moment. Fight together against outside threats. Far too often in marriage, we're fighting against the wrong enemy. Instead of husbands and wives treating each other like we're on the same team, we turn against each other. We start fighting against each other. We stop being one team, and we revert back to two teams. Now listen, disagreements and arguments are normal in marriage. You can't expect to agree with your spouse 100% of the time. Shoot, I don't agree with myself 100% of the time. But for a marriage to be healthy, we can't treat each other like the enemy. Instead, we take a different approach. We protect the unity of the team by standing shoulder to shoulder, and we look at the problem or the threat, and we say, we're going to confront this thing together. Take finances, for example. Finances can be a major source of stress in a marriage. And it's very easy to get into a blame game and say, well, the reason we're in this mess is because you always or, or you never And all of a sudden, there's a growing divide between you and your spouse. But when we decide to fight as a team, we'll say, yeah, this is a problem, but we're going to tackle this thing together. It may require a sacrifice on both sides, but we'll do it because we're on the same team. All right, so far we've looked at three of the four battles that we need to fight, but I want to hit pause before we mention that last battle because I want to look at a case study from the Bible. It's kind of a cautionary tale. It's a marriage that does not end well. We're going to look back at the Old Testament, at the marriage between David, king of Israel, and his first wife, Michael. Now, we've talked about this couple in the past because we can learn a lot from them. They're a great example of what not to do. Now, first of all, you should know that David and Michael got married in the days before David was king. At the time of their wedding, Michael's father, Saul, was king. So Michael was a princess. And that's an important part of the story because David was a rising star in the nation of Israel. And King Saul viewed young David as a threat. Saul and David had a very tense father-in-law and son-in-law relationship. In fact, for a lot of this story, King Saul is doing his best to murder David. 
So how do you think this dynamic will affect the marriage between David and Princess Michael? Well, at first, things seemed to go pretty well. 1 Samuel chapter 18 says that Michael was in love with David, and apparently he was into her too. The marriage is off to a good start, but then crazy King Saul starts trying to murder his son-in-law. At one point, Saul throws a spear at David and tries to pin him against the wall. So that puts Michael in a position where she has to choose between her father and her husband. So what do you think she does? Well, we read that Michael chooses David. She helps David sneak out of the house to escape her father. Listen to this passage from 1 Samuel 19. Michael, David's wife, warned David, If you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. So she helped him climb out through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol and put it in his bed, covered it with blankets, and put a cushion of goat's hair at its head. So I love this. It's the old dummy in the bed trick. Uh, Ferris Bueller was not the first one to come up with that. Now, at this point, how would you evaluate the relationship between David and Michael? Well, so far, they're working together as one team against a common threat. So that's good, right? But then something a little curious happens. Down in verse 17, Saul shows up and he confronts Michael. Why have you betrayed me like this and let my enemy escape? Saul demanded of Michael. I had to, Michael replied. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Now that's kind of strange, isn't it? Michael is telling a lie here. David didn't threaten her. So Michael is making her husband look really bad in the eyes of her father. Now, why would she do that? Was it out of fear? Was it out of some leftover allegiance for her dad? Well, whatever the reason, here's the result. Instead of one strong and united team made up of David and Michael... This is a moment where Michael creates two separate teams. She paints David in a negative light as a way to side with her dad. So I want you to remember that incident, but now we need to fast forward a bit. Time passes, and eventually King Saul dies, and David becomes king. And we might think, well, okay, maybe their problems are over because Saul's out of the way now, and Michael is no longer just the daughter of a king. Now she's the wife of a king. Unfortunately, though, their problems just get more intense. If you skip over to 2 Samuel chapter 6, you'll find an argument between David and Michael that ends up being the breaking point for their marriage. Now, ironically, in the first part of this chapter, David has experienced one of the high points of his life. King David led his army to one victory after another, and finally, Israel recovered the Ark of the Covenant, the great Ark of God. So on this historic day, David led a procession, a huge procession, where the ark was carried into Jerusalem. And the whole crowd celebrated and worshipped God, and David was setting the example. The Bible says that David danced before the Lord with all his might. It also says that David had stripped down to his linen ephod. Apparently, a linen ephod was a garment that didn't cover very much. It would have been considered inappropriate for the king to go out in public like that. But David wasn't thinking about his wardrobe. He he was celebrating and worshiping. He didn't care how he looked. 
but somebody did care. Michael watched this whole scene from an upstairs window. She didn't like what she saw. The Bible says she despised him in her heart. So the procession ends and David comes home. He's had a phenomenal day at work, and I'm sure he would have been excited to talk about everything that happened. This was a great victory, not only for him, but for God. But let's read what happens next. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20 says, When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now, before we say anything else, do you see how Michael is described in this verse? It says, Michael, daughter of Saul. Shouldn't that say, wife of David? Saul's been dead for a while now, but it seems like Michael is still being identified with her father. Hmm, so that's interesting. But let's look at her words. Is she treating David like they're on the same team? No, Michael attacks David right out of the gate. And why did she do that? Well, her husband, the king, was dancing around half naked in front of the slave girls like a total fool. In my opinion... Michael was thinking to herself, my father never would have acted that way. So Michael was embarrassed and angry and maybe feeling hurt. So were her feelings justified? Well, the truth is, it doesn't really matter if her feelings were justified. When a wife feels hurt and disconnected from her husband, there needs to be an open and honest conversation. They need to come together as one team and confront the issue, the problem, the threat. A good talk would have been very helpful. But now, did Michael begin that conversation well? Not at all. She starts off by treating David as the enemy. And that kicks off a vicious cycle. Michael attacks David because she feels unloved. So what happens next? David attacks Michael because he feels disrespected. Next verse. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. You see what he does there? He drags her father into this. He says, listen, woman, you may not be impressed with me, but maybe I should point out that the all-powerful God of the universe chose me over your dad. So what is David doing? He's continuing to operate like they're on two separate teams. David is not trying to bring her into the circle. He's pushing her away to that separate circle over with her family. He's driving the wedge even further. But David doesn't stop there. With his next comment, he goes in for the kill. Listen to this. David says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Oh, David. (laughs) Every time I get to that last line, I can't believe he said it. Can you imagine how that came across to Michael? It would have sounded like a threat, right? Like, hey, if you won't give me the respect that I deserve, I'll go somewhere else. I have lots of options. So let's do a quick evaluation here. Did David and Michael fight to prioritize each other? Were they building unity through love and respect? 
Were they joining together as a team to fight against outside threats? Um, No, no, and no. This argument was a train wreck, and unfortunately, they're not going to come back from this. The story ends with a sad footnote, and Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. From that point on, we don't hear anything about Michael. Now, we have to read a little between the lines here. Maybe David and Michael were unable to have children, or maybe they no longer had an intimate relationship. But it certainly seems like after that day, their marriage was effectively over. So that's the cautionary tale that we want to avoid. And you may feel like your story doesn't have much in common with the story of David and Michael, but the truth is their problems were not that different than the problems we have today. In their case, who was it that came between the two of them? Well, it was Saul, right? It was her side of the family. But what do we see today? Well, we might see a husband who still sides with his mom over his wife. He's not following God's original design to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and make her the priority. Or we might see a wife who allows her child to become a wedge between her and her husband. It's a great thing to have a deep love for your child, but it's not a great thing to prioritize your child over your spouse. And these are just a couple examples. We could list all kinds of reasons why a husband and wife may become divided. It's not always a person. It could be a job or a hobby or a pattern of sin. But let's go back to that image where a husband and wife are united as one team. Now, if we all have a basic tendency towards selfishness, and if we're facing countless threats to the unity of this team, how is it possible to win this fight over the long haul? Well, I saved the fourth battle for last because I believe this is one of the most important probably the most important. I kind of think of this as a secret weapon. Number four, fight to surrender your lives and your marriage to Christ. So what did we say? We said for two people to become united as one, each individual has to adopt a life of sacrifice. That sacrifice includes serving the other person when you don't feel like it, investing in the marriage when you don't feel like it, and showing grace and forgiveness even when you don't feel like it. But how do you get a selfish person to live like that? Well, that's where Christ comes in. When you truly surrender your life to Christ, he changes you into a whole new person. He gives you the power to break old habits of selfishness and to learn new habits of selflessness. So at the end of the day, the strongest marriage is not just a team where two become one. The strongest marriage is a team of three, where the husband and wife are united to each other, but they're also united with Christ. I want you to look closely at this picture. I truly believe this picture presents the best possible marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle explains what the Apostle Paul explains what this kind of marriage looks like. You may want to brace yourself because our culture doesn't necessarily agree with this. Uh, but Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, this is how you treat each other when you're both surrendered to Christ. And it says, 
Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And if you're a wife, you might be thinking, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I don't want to submit. That sounds unfair and demeaning. But hold on, we need to keep reading. The next verse says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, dying for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So do you see that? When a wife is surrendered to Christ, she submits to her husband. And when a husband is surrendered to Christ, he will sacrifice himself completely for his wife. The husband will love his wife like he loves himself. He will even die for her. So go back to that image where we have a team of three. Our selfish natures will always fight this scenario. But in the end, if we live this out, who wins? If the husband and wife are both living this way, everybody wins. The husband wins. The wife wins. Even God wins. And what do I mean by that? Well, why did God create marriage in the first place? Marriage was his idea, but what was the purpose? Did God create marriage to give us companionship or happiness or enjoyment? Or was God giving the world a stable foundation for families and communities and societies? Well, those are secondary reasons for marriage, but here's the primary purpose. God created marriage to be a mirror of his love for his people. Later on in Ephesians 5, Paul writes, as the scriptures say, A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. That's exactly what Jesus said, right? But then Paul goes on to say, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So if you are married, God wants you to lay down your life and your desires for your spouse because that's a picture of the way Jesus laid down his life for us. And if you're married, God wants you to be united and faithful to your spouse because that's a picture of the relationship that God wants with us. God created marriage to be a mirror of his love for his people. And when we get marriage right, God gets the honor and the glory. That's how he wins. So the bottom line is this. Whether you're married or you're single, the best thing you can do with your life is to surrender to Jesus and then let God use you to be a reflection of his love. In that way, you're giving God the honor and the glory that he deserves, but there's also a benefit that you receive. When you surrender to Jesus in marriage or in any relationship, you bring all kinds of blessings into that relationship. You're paving the way for love and joy and peace and closeness. So how do you fight for your spouse? How do you fight for your marriage? There are several important battles, but the most important one is to fight to surrender your lives to Jesus. Let's pray. 
Father, you know us inside and out. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our selfish tendencies. And so many times, Lord, we would choose what's not best for us, not best for our relationships, just because we're thinking in the moment and we're thinking selfishly. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us to surrender to you because you always want what is best all the way around. Lord, help us to understand that any sacrifices we make for your glory are also good for us. So Lord, I I pray for uh, anyone here today who needs to seriously consider and make some sacrifices that you're calling us to make. I pray for anyone who needs to surrender to you, maybe for the first time. I pray that you will lead uh, all of us to a deeper level of surrender. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing in just a moment. And if you are someone who needs to surrender to Jesus, maybe for the first time, I want to invite you to do that. As we sing, I'm going to be down front here. Our prayer team will be down front as well. We'll be here after the service is over. And if you need to say, boy, I'm ready. I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus. I'm ready to say, I I shouldn't be the boss of my life anymore. I need him to be the boss. Man, when you do that, you receive all kinds of blessings. You receive forgiveness and, and, and salvation but you also receive the the blessings of healthy relationships. And you know, it's kind of difficult in a way because uh, in marriage or in lots of different relationships, you can't control the other person. You can only be responsible for yourself. But in your relationship with God, you know that he will always be faithful. When you give your life to him, when you surrender to him, he's going to be working for your good all the time. So if you need to make that decision, if you need to give your life to Christ, if you need to be baptized, we invite you to do that. Let's all stand together and sing.